analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Welcome to the Woodford Show. We've got a packed show for you. We're going to talk to the chair of the local committee for the BC Special Olympics, Carl De Bruin. We're going to dive into plant-based food with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois in a little while. We're also going to hear from Patrice Gordon. She's from Tatla Lake, uh, just returned from a month-long deployment to Mozambique, where she provided support to the ongoing relief efforts following the devastation of Cyclone Edi. But first up, uh, federal politics. We're a pleasure to welcome in the studio this morning uh, the uh, Kamloops MP, member of parliament. I want to say Kamloops. I always forget the Thompson Caribou part. So Kamloops Thompson Caribou member of Parliament, Kathy McLeod. How are you? Absolutely, an important part of our writing, <laughs> Thompson Caribou. And good morning, great I, to join. You. I wonder where the people in the Thompson the Caribou are like. No, there's two other names to that writing. Those Kamloops people. Uh, listen, uh, it feels like we've done this interview a number of times, but it is officially official official now. Terry Lake is uh, is in the race as of last night. So we got yourself, you got Terry Lake, we're waiting for the Green Party, whatever they do, we're waiting for the NDP, which I believe have a nomination meeting set for this weekend. Uh, and then Maxime Bernier is in town for the People's Party of Canada. We'll get a candidate there as well. But uh, first off with Terry Lake and the, and the Prime Minister in town, uh, how did you feel about what you saw last night? Certainly there was no surprises. I think Terry's sort of signaled his intention for a long time. And, yeah. and no one, I think, was truly expecting any challenger. So that yeah. was not a surprise. Um, obviously, I welcome to the race, and I can turn around right now and say, but why would you ever join the Liberals? Um, <laughs> he talked last night about balanced budgets, and they've not committed to balancing the budget to 2040 you know, talked about climate being important, and they have a climate plan that's not going to meet Paris targets. So I could go on and on. So it, Well, we're going to get into that, believe it. <laughs> so, so welcome to the race, and let's start talking uh, policy. Yeah, so his quote on deficits, and I'll just read it here, uh, that has to be put into perspective. I asked him about the, the deep deficits Liberal Party have. That has to be put into perspective. As a percentage of GDP, it's very small, the smallest in the G7. Should we be balancing the budget? Yes, I do believe we need to plan to balance the budget. That's a direct quote from Terry Lake on this show yesterday. But uh, your reaction to that? Absolutely wrong. First of all, they made a commitment. 2019, they would be balanced. This is a broken promise. Second of all, maybe the debt-to-GDP, which they love to use right now, is is okay right now, but it's not going to take much. Um, we've had good economic times. We've had low interest rates. A slight turn in either of those things, and that debt-to-GDP is going to be in trouble. And we have a government that's spending not only... Um, they're spending more per capita than any government in history, and that's adjusted for inflation. That's adjusted for population growth. So... You know, if you believe in balanced budgets, this is not the party that you should be with who don't predict a balanced budget until 2040 or later. That said, we're having some pretty good economic times right now. I get your point on those could change, and then that picture changes dramatically. But there are some pretty good jobs numbers the other day. The economy seems to be roaring along, and the Liberals are taking credit for that. I think, really, the U.S. roaring along. The U.S. was late coming out of the yeah. recession, and, of course, Canada really is dependent upon the U.S. and how the U.S. is doing. We came out of the recession early. Um, the U.S. came out a little bit later. And yes, we've had good economic times, but any government knows that when you have good economic times, and that's what Paul Martin did, that's what Jean Chrétien did, that's what Stephen Harper did, we paid down the debt during good economic mm -hmm. times. So when these serious troubles came along, there was some room to actually stimulate the economy. What we have right now is stimulation without the need for the stimulation. On climate change, uh, Terry Lake saying that uh, even the Prime Minister was a major topic of discussion on the two times he did speak. 
Uh, Terry Lake saying in the show yesterday, climate change will be a big ballot box issue. Uh, do you agree? Is that will be top of mind for voters heading to the polls in fall or no? You know, I think for some voters, it will be very much top of mind. And certainly um, there is concerns. But I think what you need to do is look at the plans. And, and essentially, uh, they talk a good game about climate change. They adopted Stephen Harper's targets. They're not going to meet Stephen Harper's targets. They put in a carbon tax that, by all accounts, is not going to be effective in terms of deterring. And we already see people anxious about that impact on them. And they've got no plan. So they've got a tax plan, but they certainly don't have a climate change plan. Climate change is a global pro you know, problem. And you know Canada, with its 1.6% of emissions, needs to look at it in a global way. And certainly, I know many people are looking forward to when we put out our plan in a few short weeks and in terms of how we believe we're going to tackle this issue. And how will you tackle? I mean, you talk about carbon tax, and I get the tax argument there. But on the other hand, uh, greenhouse gas emissions are an issue. How do you incent people to uh, not pollute or to not emit as much? If you're not going to go the carbon tax route, what do you do? So I can't preempt my leader, who's going to be, of course, uh, <laughs> Come on, uh, talking, preempt a, talking in a couple of weeks. And, you know, certainly he'll be sharing what we believe we need to do that's going to move Canada forward. It's going to move, be a global part of the solution, but really not hurting people. And, and truly, even especially in the rural areas, in Vancouver, you've got choices in terms of a carbon tax. You can take a bike, you can take public transit, but when I'm out in the rural areas of this riding, where I'm up in the north, it truly is hurting. And again, we have a level of carbon taxation that scientists say won't be effective for doing what it needs to do. Um, I was interested in talking to some of the behind the scenes liberals people, you know, people from Vancouver who came up to help out, people who came with the Prime Minister from Ottawa, and the sense from them is a real genuine sense that they can win in this riding, and in the other ridings in the interior as well. Now the knee-jerk reaction would be, listen, this is a part of the province that has generally been conservative blue for a while, uh, that this is sort of a conservative stronghold. Uh, are you in for a fight? Do you, do you feel like the liberals are, could challenge or, or no? As we've talked about, I think, before, uh, every election's different, campaigns matter, and really, um, I don't ever take any election for granted, and, and I think we need to be um, very watchful, we need to be putting out good policies, and we need to have a good campaign locally. Um, what I would say is, you know, there's some real negatives in terms of the Liberals locally, certainly in terms of their energy policies, certainly in terms of their rural policies, certainly in terms of their small business policies. So they have a lot of negatives uh, federally and certainly even provincially. Uh, you know, they might talk about the Trans Mountain Pipeline going through, but that's the only energy um, advancement that they want to make. Everything else that they've done is basically put, you know, energy into a halt, whether it's the Northern Gateway, tanker moratoriums, They've done, you know, their new bill, C-69. So they're not supportive at all in terms of energy projects. They're putting red tape after red tape in terms of any resource industry, and that's critically important for the interior. So I would say that um, they need to look at a significant policy shift if they want to be competitive in the interior because many of the areas are rural and they count on the resource industry and they need a government that's got their back. 
the tanker ban uh, legislation was batted back by the Senate. Is that doomed to fail now, or what's your sense there? It came out of committee, uh, battered back, but certainly the Senate as a whole is going to have to look at it. Okay. And we'll see what happens after that. But, you know, we have First Nations, many First Nations, that really are quite angry about that tanker ban because they see their opportunities are cut off. So while Canada's importing oil from you know, other countries, they see that their opportunities to enjoy some positive economic benefits are being stifled. The other bill that we've got going through my file right now is a complete mor moratorium in the Beaufort. And again, an arbitrary moratorium where the communities are saying, you know what, we haven't been consulted. Yes, we care about the environment. We also recognize that the transition to a no or low carbon economy is going to take a while and why should other countries take advantage of the opportunities and we be cut off uh last but not least uh, maxime bernier a former colleague of yours now the head of the people's party of canada uh, will be in town tomorrow i assume to name a candidate uh, that will be on the ballot to face you in this fall's election uh do you have a threat on your right or no you know, certainly there are people that I think he's currently polling um, in the 1% range, so they have some support. You know, I've been surprised at Max, because Max hasn't, uh, you know, in my opinion, been true to who Max is in terms of some of the things he's coming out with. Uh, you know, I sat with him for over a year. We mm -hmm. had many conversations over that year in the House, and, and certainly uh, he's not the Max that I knew for sure. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of sort of race baiting and sort of, you know, social media trolling by Maxime Bernier. He's, he's changed his tone a lot, and you're surprised by that? Some of the stuff that he's coming out with is absolutely outrageous, and so really um, a surprise for me because, again, I I thought I knew him fairly well after many, many conversations, and, and he's not certainly the Max I know. Any worries about a vote split there from your perspective or no? Again, I can't. All I can do <laughs> in the next election is present our platform, work hard, and ask constituents to have faith in me again. All right. Kathy, always a pleasure. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. That's Kathy McLeod. She's the incumbent member of parliament for the Kamloops Thompson Caribou. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here on The Woodford Show, and Carl DeBruin will join us next. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. My next guest has spent his career working in education in this community nearly four decades in School District 73, uh, also chair of the TRU Board of Governors uh, and chair of the 2017 Special Olympics BC Summer Games. Oh, by the way, also being awarded an honorary doctorate at TRU. Uh, welcome, Carl DeBruin. How are you? Oh, well, good morning. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm sure I missed some stuff in there, too. You got a lot of hats, my friend. Oh, uh, well, it's been fun. Uh, before we get into Special Olympics, just on the honorary doctorate, I mean, you have spent a lifetime working in education, both within the school district and up at TRU. You've done a lot of work there. Uh, tell me the value in your mind on education, especially in a community context. Well, you know, it's, uh, Shane, it's everything. It's, uh, you know, um, growing up here, my, my mother uh, kind of raised six kids on her own. That and in, in those days in Canada, you know, you, you uh, had to go away to go to school, and yeah. it cost a lot of money, as it does today. But, but you know, the opportunities weren't as, as good, and then when... Uh, uh, Caribou College came along, now TRU, the uh, uh, opportunity opened for me and I got to go on to school and, uh, you know, you, whatever you invest in your education, you it's it's an investment that pays you back for the rest of your life. So uh, I, I think that uh, 
I want to make sure everybody has the same kinds of opportunity. Awesome. Uh, also chair of the Special Olympics Committee, I understand you have an annual, annual general meeting coming up and uh, you're looking for, for some bodies to fill some, some empty places. Tell me a little bit about that. We are, and I just recently myself uh, joined the uh, local uh, organizing committee, uh, the local chapter of the Special Olympics BC, and was asked to come in and see if I could help out, and uh, they've got an incredibly dedicated group of people who have been running the committee. Uh, people are well aware in Campus of the two uh, major uh, provincial events we held here, and the support for those was absolutely amazing. But I think a lot of people don't realize that it's, it goes on you know, every day throughout the year here in Kamloops. We have about uh, 180 athletes uh, participating in, in 18 uh, uh, sports programs, yeah. winter, fall, summer, spring. <clears throat> and that takes a lot of uh, uh, people to help with that, coaches. We've got many coaches working, giving their time. We have people uh, out fundraising and, and uh, making sure we have fields uh, available for the various sports. So it takes a, quite, a, quite a bit of work. And I don't think people are aware that this goes on all the time, but... I, I, we're hoping to raise our profile a little bit so that people uh, recognize it's happening. And uh, we're also looking for some help. You know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. what are you looking for exactly? Well, what kind of help do you need? Well, the most important help is time, volunteers, yeah. and things like that. We, we need some help with things like public relations just to, to do that, what I, what I was just talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Hanging in the back. <laughs> but but I, I, uh, we need some help with the public relations area. So we need some people who are technically savvy, you know, okay. the... the the, uh, we need to get our message little that social way. media activities we can like use that. assistance uh, program uh, support like people to help organize the program and make sure fields are ready to work with uh, some of our people there we could we could use um, helpers on all the sports events so mm. there's I think if if you've got time and you're willing to come out and you uh, uh, feel like you could dedicate some some time and some of your energy to that, we'll find something for you to do. So, Where do people reach out if they want to help out? What do they do? Uh, they go to SOBC, Special Olympics BC uh, Kamloops. Yeah. Uh, just Google it and it'll come up right away and our, our contact numbers and stuff are there. We um, uh, will be meeting on the uh, for our annual general meeting, as you indicated. Yeah. <laughs> the date for that is uh, June 17th. It'll be at the Henry Group yeah. Education Summer. June 17th, Henry Group, okay. Yeah, and you, you will be able to meet uh, many of the athletes as well as uh, join us for maybe a little pizza. And uh, they have a, We always have a dance. We have dances with just about everything. That's one yeah. of the things that our athletes look forward to the most. And, and so people are welcome to come out and, and uh, join us and learn more about it at that event as well. Do, do the Special Olympics and, and the athletes involved get the limelight they deserve or no? Well, you know, I don't know that they're looking for limelight, but I think uh, I want to celebrate that and get the message out more for the fact that uh, we want to ensure that we can continue to operate that for them. Yeah. Um, these, these wonderful opportunities, the, comp the confidence they build, and, and you know our athletes are, are, are athletes with uh, intellectual disabilities of varying degrees yeah. and, and stuff, and, but they are every bit as dedicated to their sport, and it gives them the opportunity to get out. And we want, want uh, people to... Um, to just know that they're a part of our community, welcome them in, include them in things. And I think uh, all of, you know, Shane, I, th I don't know how many hundreds of volunteers we had for the two big events that were yeah. held here. And uh, volunteer after volunteer told me that, call me anytime, you know, yeah. because they so much enjoy it. You will never work for a more appreciative group of, of athletes. And I can say that with some confidence with all the various things I've done with sports over the years. But um, there, you know, we just want to make sure that this program can continue on and, and support the people. There's, they come 
all were the same. Are you worried about the program's viability in the future years? I mean, well, uh, we're we're struggling a little bit with uh, you know both getting the number of uh, volunteers we need, but also financially a little bit. We we have okay. some fundraising activities going on, but you no, know, we're not a lot different than a lot of organizations. It takes uh, it takes money and it takes uh, uh, people's time. It's we, every one of our people involved are volunteers. Nobody gets paid or anything, but we need funding to support. Uh, you know, rental of the fields, uh, rental of school buildings and, and gymnasiums and things like that for, for the events, and to send our athletes so they can compete in other communities and uh, represent us. And they represent us well when they go. So. Yeah. Are we going to see a third big Special Olympics event in the city anytime soon or no? Well, the provincial committee told me last time they wanted to hold it here every year, but I think that would be, <laughs> be a bit of drain on the resources and the, the schools and the city facilities and things like that, although we, we would, uh, I'm certainly... Uh, wouldn't have I would have no trouble putting together another committee to do that. Yeah, any idea when that could be feasible? Like, do you put it four years apart? Do you put it six years? Apart? I mean, what do you do? Well, with they it? operate uh, every second year, but they yeah. move it around to various communities. And one of the reasons that Camus held it twice in such a close uh, proximity was that uh, the community that had taken it on was unable to live up to their 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 commitment. So okay. they came to us uh, to bail them out, and of course we did it in style. Okay. Uh, let's get that contact information one more time because I wanted to uh, want people to be able to reach out uh, and Just offer their help. So what is it again, Carl? Special Olympics BC Kamloops, and it'll come up, and there's uh, all our contacts are there, and uh, if you're thinking about it, uh, feel free to give me a call as well. Okay, fantastic. Carl, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Again, uh, congratulations on your lifetime's work in education and on that honorary dog and, and picking up the torch to help out in the Special Olympics front as well. Uh, you're a hell of a guy, and appreciate the work you do in this community. Well, thank you very much, and I'm I'm pretty humbled by that. And there's a lot of other people, deserving people in this town, but uh, I appreciate the uh, honor. Yeah, fantastic. That's Carl De Bruin. He's uh, chair of the Special Olympics Summer Games Committee here in Kamloops. And as you heard there, he would like your help uh, in ensuring the long-term viability of that program. Volunteer hours, uh, some fundraising, whatever you can do, uh, please reach out and give this very, very great cause. And then these events and these athletes. Uh, the help and, the, and the, the things that they deserve. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. We'll talk about plant-based food on the other side. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, you've probably seen some of the commercials and some major fast food restaurant chains advertising sort of plant-based burgers or beyond meat burgers, uh, that kind of thing. It's an interesting evolution in how we tackle food. Uh, pleasure to welcome the program to discuss the rise in plant-based nutrition, the Senior Director of Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Good morning, Sylvain. How are you? Good morning. Very good this morning. Excellent. Well, tell me a little bit about plant-based nutrition. I mean, it, it strikes me that, uh, you know, a decade or two ago, uh, there was no chance you would go into your local fast food restaurant and see something in the way of a Beyond Meat burger or, or uh, something along that vein, uh, and yet that's the reality we face today. So is, is this good news, and, and where's the evolution going to happen here? <laughs> it's happening. It's been happening for a while, but, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, if you actually mention the word plant-based to any retailer, they'll look at you uh, thinking that you're looking for a plant or something. Mm-hmm. And today, it's part of our uh, lexicon. You go into a grocery store, you'll see plant-based everywhere, uh, which will uh, attract not the vegans, not the flexitarians, but it will attract 
flexitarians, people who are still attached to meat but are looking at reducing the amount of, uh, of meat uh, they consume uh, every single week. In fact, actually by 2025, we are expecting almost 10 million Canadians to, uh, to uh, reduce the amount of meat they consume or they basically decide or uh, they would actually opt to not eat meat at all. So the trend is there, it's robust, and it's not going to go away. Now, I've, I've uh, full, full confession here, I'm, I'm a bit of a meat eater. I've not tried a Beyond Meat burger, but I don't know if you have, but uh, is the quality <laughs> to the point where you wouldn't almost be able to tell, or is there still a bit of growth there? Well, right now there's, there's, there's a lot of tension. I don't know if you... If you feel it uh, in, in the market or on social media, but uh, as a meat eater, you almost have to apologize now or hide. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's quite extreme, uh, and uh, there are a couple of uh, provinces where uh, the, this plant-based movement is actually quite significant. And that would be Quebec and BC. Both provinces, we've seen many consumers being being tempted by this uh, plant-based uh, plant diet. How do you feel about uh, the dollar figure attached to this? Is it competitive? Uh, is it too high? Is it too low? Uh, are people looking at it and being scared off? Are they looking at it and saying, hey, I can, I can work this into the shopping budget? It's, it's, it's wonky. Uh, the, price, the price strategy for uh, plant-based uh, products is actually everywhere. Uh, you could actually walk into a grocery store and pay uh, $8 for two patties. Uh, that's excessive. It's very expensive. But in another store, you could actually buy six patties for $8. So it really varies where you go. And, and, and frankly, if I were uh, beyond meat or if I were part of the plant-based uh, dieting movement, I'd be concerned about that because right now I would say that some some products are priced out of the market, while others are quite affordable. And and frankly, I'm 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 suspect that most Canadians don't even understand whether or not this this approach, this diet, is actually affordable. I think it is, but right now there's there's there are probably some retailers trying to take advantage of this uh, huge momentum. Do you think Do you think the beef industry cattle producers are going to view this uh, as a? I mean, they're obviously going to see it as competition, uh, or are we going to see sort of evolution over time? Just considering the need in the world today uh, to feed people, uh, that this is an, these are two industries that could perhaps work together, or or not? I think it can. Uh, of course, uh, right now we're we're at the crossroads. Uh, we're and and uh, we're going through an adoption phase. Uh, the, the, the Beyond Meat rollout was actually spectacular. Right now, you can actually find the product in 3,000 stores in the country. Not all companies can do that. That actually brought a lot of excitement and intrigue. Once we're gone, once you've gone through that phase, I suspect you'll see probably more products uh, that are maybe a little bit more, more natural. Have you, have you actually looked at the ingredient list of a Beyond Meat product? Yeah, no, I haven't. I understand uh, there's a lot of stuff in there, though. <laughs> Food science uh, was involved for sure. I mean, there's obviously the yellow peas, the main ingredient, but there's lots of different products uh, to, to replicate what beef does. Mm. And so uh, I suspect that over the next little while, you'll see more companies trying to provide a more natural product 
to to the marketplace and hopefully hopefully we'll see some Canadian companies. I know of a few startups out there that are really promising, so I do expect some Canadian products to hit the market soon. Uh, I note in your release you talk about the evolution uh, of of options that consumers will have. What caught my eye was uh, not just plant-based uh, nutrition, but also insect-based. What's going on there? What do you see in that side? There's, there's a couple of uh, other phenomena or movements that uh, we are foreseeing right now. The one, uh, the one is, uh, uh, the first one is insects. Insects are a cheap protein to produce. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's really, it really is. And there are more certified farms out there, uh, certified to produce uh, crickets, for example, and mealworms. And so we are expecting uh, the ingredient market to become a little bit more active around insects. Uh, and they may actually incorporate some of these products into, uh, into some products we actually eat every single day. Uh, that will have to be labeled, of course. And uh, if uh, canes have the appetite for it, then then it may actually be successful. I wouldn't be surprised. The other phenomena, uh, which we're watching very closely, is is cultured meat, lab-grown meat, oh. artificial meat, uh, and some call it in vitro meat. Uh, I'm actually off to uh, New Orleans in a couple of weeks to taste uh, lab-grown meat, cultured meat. So I'm looking forward to that. And, and again, it's all about replicating what we're accustomed to, what we put on the barbecue uh, while saving the planet and, uh, and our health. Where do you get cultured meat from? How do you grow meat in a lab? You need stem cells. Uh, you, still, you still need an animal, but you only need a couple of cells, and you actually uh, recreate them. Uh, you generate this nucleus, this genetic nucleus, to produce more and more cells, and you end up with a steak. So uh, about five years ago, the cost to produce 150 grams of cultured meat was almost 300 U.S. 200,000 U.S. dollars. Now it's down to five U.S. dollars. Wow. But the technology has evolved immensely. So, do you see Sylvain in the future uh, going into? Uh, the meat aisle of, of a grocery store, uh, currently you go in and you get your usual standard fare. You get your chicken, your pork, your steak, your turkey, all that kind of uh, stuff. Do you see a day soon now where you go in there and you get the standard meat fare, you get the beyond meat fare, you get the insect-based meat, you get the culture? Like, Do you see an array of stuff now taking part of the meat aisle or no? I think uh, right now what we're seeing with plant-based dieting is that there's, there's a lot of, of, of tests, and, and grocers are exploring different options. I, I do see the day where grocery stores will be designed a little bit differently based on our nutritional needs. For example, uh, you may actually end up in a protein section or the fiber section, and uh, you can actually see that happening more and more. Of course, uh, in many cases, you'll have an array of different ingredients and nutrients but you'll actually probably see uh, sections where uh, you'll find food where there is, there's a dominating ingredient in there and they want to actually sell it to, uh, to Canadians. And so the design of the store will likely change. Uh, my last question, we've talked a lot about plant-based nutrition and all sorts of sort of meat alternatives, but uh, there's still going to be a market for beef, 
Um, what, how do you see that industry evolving in light of the competition that's now shaping up? Is it going to be the, the way it always has? Is there going to need to be some change there? How does the beef industry, uh, how does its future sort of evolve? That's a good question. I actually do think there's a bright future for, for beef in general, uh, but they, they will have to capitalize on the natural aspect of the product. I mean, it is a commodity. It's, uh, it's an unprocessed commodity. It's a natural product. Well, a lot of the things that we're seeing in the marketplace uh, are unnatural. That's probably the one thing they're going to have to capitalize on. And, of course, uh, traditions, uh, history, uh, both are on uh, on uh, cattle producers' side. So those are things that you also want to consider as well uh, when you're selling beef. Uh, I think there's there's going to be a lot of Canadians looking for that natural product still. And so there's a there's a space there on that plate for beef. Sylvain, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure. Take care. There we go. That's Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Uh, he works with Dalhousie University, the director of Agri-Food Analytics Lab. As you heard there, a big evolution in plant-based nutrition and insect-based products as well as cultured meat, essentially meat grown in a lab, all competing with good old Canadian beef. Uh, we'll have to see how that shapes up. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we're going to finish up. Uh, we're going to talk about a disastrous situation in Mozambique uh, with a local who just came back from spending a month working with the Red Cross and Disaster Relief. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. About eight weeks ago, South, uh, Southern Africa was hit uh, by two subsequent cyclones, left a trail of damage and destruction in their path. A uh, tropical cyclone Edai making landfall in central Mozambique, bringing with it torrential rains, winds, flash flooding, death, widespread destruction. The official death toll standing at more than 1,000 people, more than 1,600 others injured, an estimated 1.85 million people in need in Mozambique alone. Patrice Gordon, who lives in Tatla Lake near us, is just back from spending a month working with the Red Cross in Mozambique and joins us now. Good morning, Patrice. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. Well, uh, number one, uh, congratulations on, on uh, taking some time and doing something that is so humanitarian where the need is so vivid. Um, what did you see there? How shocking was it? It was pretty shocking. The, the amount of destruction just driving out to the place, the district hospital that we were going to support, you could see the crops were damaged. There was still standing water, which, of course, leads to problems with cholera and malaria yeah. and issues. But the hospital itself that we went to um, embed ourselves in was the roof was torn off. They had no running water. Their ability to provide care was really limited, and that was there the district hospital for covering 310,000 people. Wow. Um, the aftermath is going to take a long time. To, it's called the worst disaster uh, uh, Mozambique has experienced in quite some time. Did you get a sense that the country was, was even beginning to pick up the pieces, or there's still just so much work to do? There is so much work to do. It's a long, long road ahead. I think um, we saw signs, very positive signs. You know, the people are showing incredible resiliency. There's a lot of global support from the Red Cross and a lot of other organizations. And the people themselves are really just digging in and working hard to get their country back on track. What do they need most? Is it, is it, is it 
just sort of manpower in terms of aid workers coming in. Uh, I'm always leery. I mean, money's always nice, but I'm always leery of whether it actually hits impacted areas like on the ground where it needs to go. I mean, if we're going to help, how do, what, what form do you think that help should take? Well, I think there's a, there's a lot of great work being done by organizations, and the way that we can help at home is actually through money, through donating, because that's what puts the field workers, the, the healthcare workers, and all the technical people that are helping support them, that's what funds all of that. That's what is, is driving that whole bus. So that's, that's something that everyone can do. I think it's um, for me personally, it's really, it's very gratifying to have some skills that I can take and that are applicable in a disaster and emergency context. But not everybody has the, I've got an amazingly supportive family and Interior Health and the First Nation communities that I work in are also incredibly supportive. Not everyone has that. And so donating to Red Cross or other organizations, do your research and, and know that it's a, that they're reputable organizations and it is really the thing that each individual can do. Was there a, was there a moment, whether it's a, talking to a person, doing something a day, uh, was there something that stands out vividly in your mind from, from the month you spent there? There's many, there's many things that pop into my mind. I think um, there's, there was a little boy, a five-year-old, that was in the malaria treatment center, and the, the children get hit really hard with malaria. We only, in our malaria treatment center, only had the sickest of the sick, and probably 90% of the, the patients in there were young children. There was a little boy who was about five, and he, one day, when he came in, we really didn't think his chances of survival were great. And a, a highlight of my deployment was walking in two days after I'd been there, seen his mom, you know, hugged his mom as she sat there and worried about her little boy. Two days later, walked in and he was sitting up and grumpy about having intravenous lines in, but he was conscious and he'd survived. And to sort of see that the mom, her eyes lit up when I walked in the room and she came over and gave me a big hug. And to see just, it's those those single examples of a great big picture, but you get li these little glimpses of, oh yes, we are making a difference. And that is what is so powerful and what really keeps us going. Is it Was it hard for you to go in there and see some of that stuff and then kind of come back uh, to this life where you have so much at your fingertips uh, and these people back there are struggling so much? Yeah, you, you have hit the nail on the head. I think, you know, I come home to a beautiful spring, to my loving family, to my animals and my comfortable home. And there is definitely a guilt attached to this, you know, to coming home and reflecting back and knowing that they're still struggling. I think the way to navigate that is, for me, is to know that I did what I could, know that I'm continuing to support them, that I'm keeping in touch with a lot of people that I connected with while I was there, and knowing that there are other people that are there now that are helping to support them and moving it forward. Are you going to go back ever or no? I would love to go back just to visit everyone, but and and absolutely, I'd go back in a disaster in an instant. It was it is always a really powerfully positive experience, um, kind of paradoxically because it's in the midst of such um, difficulty and challenges and scorpions and malaria and all the 
you know, trying to speak Portuguese, all of the challenges. But at the same time, it is, it's incredibly positive to be part of something that is, you know, just humanitarian at the, the root of it all. I'm always curious, I mean, there's a country where they struggle for infrastructure. You get a storm like this that blows a lot of it away and causes so much destruction. Uh, and we tend to view it um, almost like a one-off. And I, I just wonder in this era of climate change, whether you got a sense from people there about in the rebuild, how they have to factor in the possibility of another hit like this, or even, re- un, you know, uh, God forbid, um, regular hits like this from, from tropical storms evolving out of climate change. That's, that's a good question. One of the things that, uh, you know, we had a, a technical, a group of technical members on our emergency response unit team that were doing critical repairs on the hospital and their outpick excuse me, outpatient department, their roof, getting their water systems up and running and all of that. But in terms of reconstruction, part of their um, process was to do an evaluation of the ability of the structure to withstand future storms and to build, you know, the construction process is very, very closely controlled to make sure that it's really quality construction that's being done and that the building is being done to withstand storms to the best of the ability. You know, there's some storms that that um, are pretty, you know, un, it's not possible to, for things to withstand entirely, but certainly the quality of the reconstruction is taking into consideration the fact that this is a reality. They've had two cyclones in, in three weeks, so, or in short order, and so, it, yeah, that's our future reality, it looks like. Yeah, that's, that's awful. Um, mm-hmm. I guess my last question is, uh, you were fortunate enough to go and, and do this, this thing and, and put your hands in the problem and affect some change and some positivity. Um, a lot of us don't get a chance to do that or maybe choose not to do that, unfortunately. Uh, if people want to help out uh, any way that they can, uh, how would you advise they do that? There's a role for a lot of different people. You know, I encourage people to look into organizations like the Red Cross. You know, they're my personal favorite, of course. But other organizations as well that may be closer to home and and just see where your skill set or where your interests can can create, you know, some positivity in the world. And certainly not everyone has the financial wherewithal to donate, but you can give your time, and it doesn't have to be on the other side of the planet. We have our own share of domestic disasters, and a lot of wonderful work has been done by caring individuals through the wildfires and the flooding, and so there's a lot of good stuff that can be done close to home. Patrice, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, and and thank you for... Uh, having your heart in the right place and and doing something like this. Uh, I wish there was more of you in the world. Thank you, and thank you so much for your interest. Thank you so much. That's Patrice Gordon. She lives in Tatla Lake. Uh, If you don't know, that's near Williams Lake. Uh, Just returning back from a month-long deployment in Mozambique, working with the Red Cross, uh, trying to put uh, the pieces together after Cyclone Edai uh, just tore that country apart. Uh, just if you look at the images or, or take some time today, look at video from Mozambique to get a sense of the destruction. It's just, it's unbelievable. Uh, so she spent a month there working uh, with the Red Cross in the hospital, trying to help people out as best she could, as you heard there. Uh, if you'd like to help out to perhaps uh, donate some money or some time, uh, you can uh, you can look there, certainly look up Red Cross and, and perhaps uh, take some direction from there. That brings to an end this edition of the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be right back on Radio NL tomorrow.
from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local news now.